From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Battlefields Podcast, where we cover everything from the front lines to the home front. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fate, here today with my friend and fellow war veteran, Mason Rodrigue. Mason, welcome to Battlefields. Hey, thanks for having me. Good afternoon, Charlie. Hey, and I got your name right this time too, right? Not Rodrigue. Yes, yeah, so we can roll into like a great story about that. Yeah, obviously we wear name tapes in the military, and my last name does not have a Z. It's a Cajun last name. Um, I believe it was actually Spanish, Portuguese or something like that, if you trace it all the way back. But people would always come up to me and be like, is there, where's the Z on the end of your name? And I'd be like, where's the Z on the end of your name? And they're like, well, I don't have one. I'm like, well, I don't have one either. But thanks for assuming that I'm the asshole that walks around with fucked up name tapes. And obviously I wouldn't do this to like super high ranking people, but it was, it, it Eventually, so in the Marine Corps, I just went by Rod. That was easy enough. Right. Was everyone, and that's who I was for four years. Yeah, it, it is an interesting last name. And, and you just assume that it's, it is a Rodriguez or Rodriguez or something like that. But it's not. I've, I've literally had to verify, like, when, we're, when there would be roll call for, uh, like, say, my platoon or something was attached to like a unit that I'm not normally in. And there's a first sergeant up there who's in charge of like a lot of people he doesn't know. I would have to double check a lot that he was not saying Rodriguez and thinking that was me. <laughs> I've had it happen where someone would be like Rodriguez Mason. And I would raise my hand. I'd be like, first sergeant, does that have a Z at the end of it? It's like, no, I'm like, okay, that, that actually is me. And be like, what? I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm present. You know? Yeah. Where's your Z Lance corporal? Where is it? Go well, fine. <laughs> n- normally people don't have problems pronouncing my last name faint, but they spell it wrong often, especially people in the military. They spell it like the military maneuver faint, F-E-I-N-T. Like a boxing? like a- Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or paint or saint or any number of other things. So as, as a fellow uh, last name mispronounced person or misunderstood, I, I empathize uh, with that. So I, I get it. Yeah, but- it's all great. It's all good, brother. Hey, um, so you and I have known each other for a while now, but for our listeners who've never met you before, can you talk to us a little bit about your early life and what drove you to join the Marine Corps? Yeah, definitely. So I grew up um, in South Louisiana, uh, pretty normal middle class family. Um, My parents uh, divorced when I was five, got back together when I was seven, uh, had some more kids, divorced at 12. And then I, and this is the kind of thing I explore a lot in my writing now is um, how childhood, not just in my writing, but in in kind of some of the the therapy I'm going through, but how childhood affects who you become. And I remember, uh, this is just one of those deep core memories, but I remember when 9-11 happened, it, it affected me every little boy like wants to grow up and become a man, right. In some way, shape or form. Um, I was finding football. Football was the first thing that, 
that my father was like super proud that I was doing. Right. I was more of a creative kid. I would draw a lot. I liked storytelling. I, I was into all that stuff. Right. Um, but football was this pursuit. Like I, I wanted to play a sport as a kid. I would get carted out playing soccer a lot. Um, a little too rough. Maybe I was, I was the oldest of four and I got into football and my dad's this huge football fan. So it clicked and it was this outlet. Right. And, and, and that's kind of who I was early in life. My birthday is September 12th. I remember the day before I turned 11, nine 11 happens and we hear about it at school and, I grew up very patriotic, like, like most kids did back, back in, back in the day, you know, I don't know what's being taught now, but, um, there was this feeling like understanding, like, even as a 10 year old kid, I realized the world was never going to be the same. And it never felt safe anymore after that either in a, in a way that I think people who live through it can relate. So I continued to grow up. I put all of my, identity, all of my effort, all of my everything into football. Um, this was my identity. It was, it was what made me feel accepted. It was what made me, you know, feel like a man, feel like a, a tough guy, right? I was hitting the weights twice a day. I, the way I'm built right now is how I was built by about 15. I was a 15 year old with a 300 pound bench press. I was, I was like that kid, you know, um, and then I, I pursued that into college, trying to walk on, you know, played a, a large university. Um, I had a knee injury that didn't, you know, that, that ended that more or less. I played rugby and I was looking to go the officer route for the Marine Corps because I kept coming back to that, that feeling of like, well, what am I going to do with my life? And there was nothing that called to me the way that did. I, rem- I, I can remember, I remember the first time I watched Jarhead, right? I remember the first time I watched Full Metal Jacket and it felt like a challenge. And the Marine Corps is the only branch that I know of that recruits more based on challenging you than offering you something. Right. I will give you this title if you can earn it. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And to me, right. and, And this is a theme that comes up in my book. This is this is something that I'm still unpacking, but. I was looking for validation as a man. I was really looking for how to be a man. And, you know, it took me to the Marine Corps. And what I found there was that all of my peers were there with the same question. You know, I I feel like we're we're diving back into this, uh, this same topic that uh, we, we had hosted by Chris on profiles and havoc one time. We had a great hour and a half, maybe two hour podcast about, masculinity. But what, if I had to distill what led me to the Marine Corps, it's that. Plain and simple. So once you got into the Marines, what was your, your specialty? What, what did you do in the Marine Corps? I was a 0331 machine gunner. I picked the, the most badass thing that was offered. Um, and the, the Marine Corps will separate their infantrymen. Uh, so the, there's the every Marine or rifleman concept, right? So after boot camp, everyone goes to school of infantry. If you're going to be in the infantry, you do two months of infantry training. If you're not, you're going to do a one month, like quick and quick and hard crash course before you go learn whatever else you do. For us, the first, the first month is all the basics and they're assessing people's personalities, 
their aptitude. And in, a, in the case of machine gunners, well, really any weapons MOS, right? Machine gunners, mortarmen, anybody who's got to carry extra stuff, they're assessing their physical strength, how well they can hump weight, you know, how, things like that, right? So me and all the other like meatheads who showed up, you know, looking like they would already have to tape out with the big thick neck and, and all that, right? They looked at us immediately and were like, those are going to be machine gunners. I was unusual in that I was college educated and I'm a lot smarter than I lead on to be when I, when I meet people. Um, I had a 120 GT score, your general technical, uh, which is really what determines what kind of jobs are going to be available to you. And they almost made me be a, an anti-tank missileman. And there was this, this, cause that requires the highest score. Um, and the, the running thing between those two instructor groups was we need strong anti-tank missilemen. And they were like, well, we need smart machine gunners. And it was this thing, but I, I always knew in my gut, like that's the route I was going to go because it's what does every kid, you know, they see Rambo with the M60 and he's just belt fed and it's just cool. There's no other way to describe it. It was the, it was what I wanted to do. It was what I wanted to be a part of machine gunners in the Marine Corps are like the infantry is like a cult. If you've been around the infantry, you'll, you'll realize like, I don't know how to explain to people, except like when you show up to your unit, it feels like like checking into a prison. You've got the different companies and they all have beef. And you, I mean, your barracks, it, it, it's like it's like being jumped into a gang. Right. And there's an immense amount of pride in rivalry and competition between squads, between platoons. But it scales up. Right. Like first and third platoon might not really get along, but if Charlie company has to go fight alpha, like you're all in on it, you know, and this is the reality that I suddenly realized I was in, but machine gunners have this special place because they are like the enforcers. They're the, they set the tone and, and they're, it's just, a, it's, it's all the, it's all the dudes who used to walk around high school stuffing kids into lockers in one platoon. That's the best way for me to describe it. That, that sounds terrifying. It do so. There is a subset of young men who join the Marine Corps who are not like super alpha male in high school, but they're looking for that. And it's got to be terrifying to show up and realize all the dudes who were picking on you in high school are here, but now they have guns. <laughs> but it's it it's it's just such an interesting cross section of people. But it, at the end of the day, like I said, it's it's all they're all there looking to validate their own masculinity in some way. I. I I truly deeply believe that like, yes, they're there because they want to serve the country and this and that, but you go talk to, if you go back to my unit right now and you talk to all the, the 19, 20 year old kids, like, why are you here? They're like, cause I want to go fight in a war. And that's not the healthiest thing to want in life. But I think it's good that the people whose job it is to do that want it. Well, well, speaking of wanting to go fight, I know you spent some time downrange. Can you talk to our audience about your experience as a Marine Corps machine gunner in combat? Yeah, so um, I'll, I like to call it combat light. Um, there's a lot of emphasis put on combat, whether or not someone deploys somewhere, gets a combat action ribbon, this and that. Um, within about three months of getting to my unit, uh, Charlie company was pulled to attach to task force nine, seven to go support operation inherent resolve in Syria. This is in the fall of 2017. So Charlie company was the infantry company that they were, was being sent to, to reinforce. They were required to have one combined anti-armor team, which is essentially a, a, 
a platoon of machine gunners and anti-tank missilemen and a few other MOSs here and there as like kind of like dismounts and scouts and things. But it's all mounted because it's all heavy weapon systems. So we have the M250 Cal heavy machine guns. We had a, I mean, I, my MRAP was like a rolling armory. We had multiple javelins, rockets, laws. I had a, we had two Maduzas in case one went down. You had a 240 in it, you know, just for, for shits and giggles. You had, you know, we had all the Mark 19s. We had, we had everything. We were, you know, we were all of the the firepower you could want on wheels. And we were there to make sure that anytime anything had to move around in country, um, they were, it was a protect, we were, it was protected, you know, we were the security for pretty much every movement in our, our area of operations. So um, it got very real, very quick. You know, I was expecting to go on a rotation to um, Spain and Italy as part of the, the, or well, that would be the Black Sea rotation force all went to Norway and, and kind of Northern Europe. And then the, the special purpose MAGTAF Marine Air Ground Task Force. Um, that's what I think Alpha did a lot. They ended up doing that. You know, Spain, Italy, Horn of Africa, that kind of thing. Um, those guys ended up doing that after they were deploying for that by the time I got back from Syria. They pulled us all into an office. They're like, hey, in, in about a month, like you guys are doing this. So you are going to be like going balls to the walls, hammer down, preparing for this deployment. And all of us were like, oh, yeah, we're going to get some. Like we were all fired up, you know, like. Uh, but deep down, everyone also, like, I, I talked to them later, like my friends and they were like, no, I was like scared. They were like, I, I was like, damn, this is like happening really fast. And that's the turnover that the Marine Corps used to have in the, in the, the hot and heavy phases of Iraq and phases of Afghanistan. Dudes were six months on six months off almost. So it happened quick. I, um, because of my age maturity, because of, uh, I also like was very proficient in, in the machine guns, was selected to be the gunner for the lead vehicle. So eyes and ears for the entire convoy. Um, we patrolled over 4,000 miles, never got in a gunfight. Um, and I came home like really pissed off about that. And that's that was my time downrange. It was everything I wanted it to be. I remember watching, I remember being at my grandmother's house, my grandparents' house in like 2003, like the night they invaded Iraq, right? Watching that push and seeing all the Marines in the in the Humvees. There are these light-skinned Humvees with like no doors and no turret, and they're just behind like a 50 cal. And I'm like, dude, that's a that's a badass up there, man. Like, I want to be that one day. Like, and and there I was, you know. Um, and I was getting what I wanted. And that deployment. You know, everyone came home from it, and I'm so grateful for that. But a lot of my peers felt very – everyone was proud of what they did, but they were just, like, pissed that they didn't get combat. They didn't get a combat action ribbon. They didn't get to get some. Um, and that's the thing that all of us had to work through, you know, for, for however long it took. I totally get that. And you brought up an interesting point, kind of the cultural differences between the Army and the Marine Corps. And in that Syria going on exactly what, what you just said right now, we would definitely consider that combat. It was a combat conditions, but other folks have kind of a different perception of it. Like you just outlined, it's very interesting, the cultural differences between the two. And I, I remember, go ahead, go ahead, Mason. Well, I was going to say, well, first of all, like, is this a family show or like, it's already sworn a couple of times. No, go, go ahead. Any, well, I, mean, I, I call it, it, it's to me, it's the dick measuring contest. Right. And it's most, it is mostly found 
at, at within people who have only done one enlistment, whether that's veterans who did one enlistment or guys within their first enlistment, right? I had staff and COs who saw more combat than they would ever want to see. And they were never the ones boot checking you over what you did and didn't do. Occasion, like, like, so I had, we, we got an actual campaign ribbon. It was a real no shit campaign, but we had, we were at like Marine, we were at like Marine week in Charlotte. And there was one guy who was like, what the fuck is that ribbon? Cause I didn't have a car with it. And I think we also like, didn't get uh, another one that you usually get. And I was like, no, it was, a, it was a real deployment. I went like, it is what it is. And it was just this thing where I, I hated having to always try to explain for it or like play small or it was just this weird thing to have to socially navigate um and it's it comes from a place of insecurity yeah it comes from this place of young marines feeling so badly that they have to prove themselves you know and it's 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 a double-edged sword right i like that that my i liked that my unit and that my mos and that these that we were so hungry for it but to the detriment of your own like perceived worth in your service, I think is, is an unhealthy thing. It's something that on my social media, like in my DMS, I end up having to talk to people all the time about it's there. It's this big hangup for a whole, the whole like late GWAT generation of Marines is a lot of them stay hung up on it. And it's like, there's so much more to life, you know, there's so much more to your service too. Could not agree more. And it's it's also very interesting now at, at West Point where I'm still teaching and while well, still working in retirement, we're seeing more and more young officers and even NCOs show up with, with no combat patch. And that's interesting for me because when I first got here in 2013, you wouldn't see that. Almost everyone had one. And the ones who weren't wearing them were kind of like folks you were just describing who don't feel like they had anything to prove. They have their pick of several. They just don't think they need to do it. And now it's it's not the case anymore. And I think there's a lot of overemphasis on the merit badges versus the merit of the individual. Just because you were in combat long enough to get a badge or a, a ribbon or something like that doesn't mean you were good at it. Doesn't mean you're a good person necessarily. Yeah, 100%. Anyone who's actually been downrange will tell you when you breach this subject, they're like, there are guys who were like, literally like cowards in that moment who got that badge they got that ribbon you know it's uh there's a poem in the book called ribbon stack then the the idea behind that poem is that you are more than your ribbon stack it doesn't tell the whole story it's not and it doesn't determine your your worth it's a and this is something i'll start to somebody about so you go especially guys who join the infantry, but I think people, I, I hear it from people who, when I meet veterans who were in other branches or were in uh, like non-combat roles, MOSs, there's this weird like deference that they'll do. Like they'll meet me and I'm like, oh, I was a machine gun in the Marine Corps. And they'll be like, oh, well, I was just this. I'm like, okay, well, listen, just this. If I don't get fed, like I can't do my job. If I don't get paid, I will still be forced to do my job, but boy, like, will I fucking not be happy about it? You know, if I don't, if I don't have air support, if I don't have this, if I don't have that, right. It takes like, there's, it's the spear and shield concept. The tip of the spear doesn't do shit. If there's not an entire shaft behind it to thrust it forward into something, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. It's anyone will tell you like, yeah, 
I personally chose to go be that dude at the, at the point of friction because that's what I wanted. But this idea that I could do that alone is, is insane. You know? Absolutely. To be successful in the battlefield, whether that's at home or, or overseas, it, it's a, very much a team effort. And all these things are important. I think one of the great strengths of America is our logistics and ability to put Marine Lance Corporal machine guns on the ground in Syria in a day and sustain yeah. them throughout the fight. Nobody else in the world could do that. We're seeing that in Russia right now. Their logistics suck, and they're getting beat up bad over that. Yes, 100%. I was thinking the exact same thing when you brought that up. It's like, well, what, what is the difference, right? And in China, I'm sorry, Russia has been proven as like, yeah, they might have some of these things and some of this tech, but if you can't get it to where it needs to go yeah. and fund it, correctly like if you don't have those things it it won't work so that's a it's it's something that i've run into in my volunteer work with veterans and just when i meet them or talk to them there there's no there is no need to have this like deference to someone else right i've met people from the special operations community i don't like i don't jerk them off right like there's no need to and and also like they probably don't want to be right it's anyone who Anyone who thinks that that stuff matters more than the actual person you're talking to and that's in front of you is not someone that you want to associate with, be around, have on your team. It's, it's, it's not, you know, there's a, there's a place for rank and awards and all these structures, but there's also a lot of stuff. For, there's a, there's a huge part of life where that, that doesn't matter. That's exactly right. And if you're just good at your job, do it well, take pride in it. That should be all that matters. No need to church it up. No need to apologize for it. Anyone who's doing any service is already doing more than most Americans in the first place. So be proud of what you do. Could not agree more. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the big message I get everyone. My first sergeant told us, you got to do two things. Be good at your job. Look fuckable in your uniform. <laughs> I'm like, shit, okay. So, and I think that is probably applicable to everything outside of the Marine Corps too, so. Maybe maybe I need to make that the tagline for this this podcast is put that in there. That'll be the lead. I get yeah, uh, go viral instantly. We'd have to give First Sergeant Martin credit because that's such a great line. And that's such a good, like, that's such a good Marine First Sergeant line as well. It's, it's, I, it's I can imagine fewer things more stereotypical from a Marine senior NCO than what you just said. Could not Could not agree more. Yeah, but he got his point across. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, that's that summarizes everything he expects of us. So, well, you mentioned the book, and you're talking about Rock Eater. Absolutely, yep. Hey, mm. I want to explore that in depth. Before we do, I want to talk about something that you and I can see, but our audience can't. That's that massive, beautiful U.S. Marine Corps flag behind you. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that flag and what it means to you? Yeah, so this is my most prized possession um, in in this house right here. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the structure of like an infantry battalion, you will have three line companies, which is all all foot mobile troops, right? Each of them have their own weapons company, their own machine gunners, and then it'll have a weapons company that is all of the major battalion level support, which is heavy machine guns, all anti armor, uh, heavy mortars, your eighty ones platoon, and snipers. Um, I think snipers used to be a headquarters element. Now it's now it's with weapons. But what that allowed for me in my career 
with my, with my unit um, was that I was always being tasked out to attach to and support Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie Company. Uh, my first deployment was with Charlie Company. So obviously I got very, very close with, with those riflemen, with those machine gunners. Um, and I had friends from infantry training battalion that came to my unit that ended up in Bravo. And I, so, and I'm, I'm from South Louisiana. I'm a talker. I'm a social person. I like to, I like to get around. If there's no party at weapons company barracks tonight, there's probably one at Alpha Charlie or Bravo. So I'm gonna go walk my ass over there and, 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 and meet people. Right. So I ended up meeting a tremendous amount of, of people, like just regular guys from all the different platoons. So I wanted something, uh, to remember all that by when I left. So I bought this flag, right? It's got the, the fringe and all that. It's 1899 at the PX. And I sectioned it off, right? So I wrote Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. And then I put a little area like heavy guns is right here. Snipers is down here. The 81's platoon is right there. Anti-armor. So there was space. And I just started making the rounds in the barracks going, you know, room to room like hey guys would you sign this and like usually well we got to get a picture before you leave and you know it was it was awesome so i filled this flag up and then i started going to my platoon leadership my company leadership my first sergeant signed it um ambulance or body bag never quit uh my company guns signed it killer be killed um you know this is a dude with like six or seven combat tours like just like when you picture like when you picture like the Clint Eastwood Marine, like he's kind of like that, except ball. Um, and I just kind of kept going, you know, down the line like that. And, you know, I'm getting all like my staff and CEOs that really positively impacted me to sign it. And um, most Lance Corporals, because I got out of the Marine Corps as Lance Corporal. We'll probably get to this point of the story, but about halfway through my career, I took an NJP and it derailed my shot at, I was on track for like a three and a half year sergeant, section leader, it derailed that. I just continued to show up and do my job. And I was blessed to have platoon leadership that knew me before that incident and gave me a shot to stay in a leadership role. So fast forward toward to the end of, of my, the end of that workup. And then we do a rotation to Japan on this unit, you know, the unit deployment program and COVID happens. So we don't do anything, but we, in the course of that workup, we won battalion of the year and battalion of the quarter three times. We absolutely just crushed it. Um, it was a, a well-oiled machine and I was just proud to be a part of, of, of this unit. Um, the battalion sergeant major and lieutenant colonel like took notice of this private first class who's like, you know, running a gun truck and, and filling in as a section leader and just doing all these things. I ended up getting two Navy and Marine Corps achievement medals. Um, you know, they saw like, okay, so there's a lot of potential here with this guy. If big, if, if we can get the NJP expunged, I was open to it to see what reenlistment opportunities were on the table. They were not able to pull those strings, unfortunately. Um, but I appreciated that deeply. That's not something they had to put their name on the, on the line for me for. So we do our last, you know, battalion formation. They release everyone for, for leave. And then during that post-deployment leave block, like I'm getting out. So I won't see any of these people ever again. I asked my platoon sergeant, I was like, do you think they would sign this? He's like, I'll find out. So he goes to the company office and he texts me. He's like, hey, come up to come up to, to battalion HQ. So I got right here. My sergeant major signed it. Lieutenant colonel signed it. And not only signed it, but like, like personalized the message. Um, that meant so much to me, right? 
and we're I'm up there. We're in the, the you know the company H or battalion HQ, right? And weapons company just got a new CEO, new captain. So he's in there and he sees like the BC coming out to like you know hug and like they're dapping me up, like they're they're like you know you know we love you. He's like I could see him looking at me like who's this fucking Lance Corporal that they're like so like hyped on. It was just a funny, uh, funny moment uh, for me. But this is, yeah, this is, this is like my most prized possession. I, I look at it often, and I read the messages, and I remember the people, I remember the bonds, and everything I do now within the veteran community. Um, the the message I've put out through the the book I've written. It's it's for you know, as I say, like for the boys, right? Um, you know, cause I served with these guys, obviously these are my boys, but I've done a lot of work with patrol base Abate and then other better nonprofits. And they're all the same guy. They all have the same story. All every story is different. Every story is the same, you know, and we all kind of need the same things. Well, that's a beautiful flag and a great story. And I'm just imagining the look on a Marine company commander's face when one of their Lance Corporals is getting hugs from the Marine Corps Battalion commander. That's that's not something you expect to see every day, especially on your first day of the job. Yeah, it was a very unusual, I, I had a very unusual career. Everything from being a 26-year-old college graduate showing up like as a, you know, boot machine gunner to, it, it was, but I don't, I don't think I would have been able to write this book if I had experienced it as an 18-year-old you know, 18 year old me, I don't think I would have had the context. I wouldn't have had the life experience. I wouldn't have seen it through the lens. I saw it. Right. Because when I showed up in boot camp as a 26 year old who just had a job at a refinery and was paying his own bills and had the degree, like, and all my peers are 18. I'm like, Oh fuck. I'm like, these are kids. And, I was talking to a friend of mine. She was a corpsman um, stationed on Lejeune. This is after, you know, everything happened in in Kabul when we pulled out of Afghanistan. But we were talking about it after those, you know, I think 11 Marines, a corpsman and a a soldier. You know, Mm -hmm. he messaged me. She said, Mason, they're they're just kids. And I said, they've actually always been kids. Yeah. We were kids watching on the news you know, they look like heroes and, and giants and, and these grown ass men. But, you know, there's a poem in the book called Lords of the Flies. And it's, you know, you, you get there and your seniors, you know, they, they told me like, you want to join the infantry? Like you're going to be getting bossed around by some like 20 year old kid, 21 year old kid. I'm like, I want to be in the infantry. I'm like, so if this 20, 21 year old kid is a combat veteran and they have every right to, to, to train me how they see fit. I had the first group of Marines as my seniors that did not go on a combat deployment Mm. in one six. So like in that unit, that unit had done nothing but combat tours from 2002 all the way up until 2016 when they deployed. And they, they had some hangups about it for sure that a lot of that got passed on to us. Um, but they were super well-trained, right? All that training, this is what, this is what's interesting, right? I understand the concept of generational trauma because of the Marine Corps. 
not most people figure it out and they apply it to their own family and all these different toxic behavior patterns and stuff like that. I saw it first in the Marine Corps. I saw it first when I showed up to school of infantry and all these combat instructors are nothing like the drill instructors. They are actual super hardened combat vets and they were clearly all like they were a lot of them were like this stereotype combat veteran. They were, I could, you could tell like they were like always pissed, always angry. They were, they were all of those things. And just like your training is passed down from group to group, to group, right? You're, you're, you show up, you're a boot. You have seniors who just deployed. They train you, you deploy, they leave you now. And it's just, a, it's a, it's a repeating process, right? With all that training comes all that trauma. I could physically feel it in the walls of the barracks. How much, how much combat and how much, how much just how, like what had taken place here and who had lived here and, and all of that. You can feel it when you check into an infantry unit. It's this intangible thing in the air. Well, Mason, we've talked about your book a couple of times. Let's, let's have a lengthier discussion about that. So your book is rock eater. Yes. And what can you tell our audience what it's about and how you came to publish it? You, you normally don't associate Marine Corps machine gunners with a work like the one that you produced in Rock Eater. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about it, about that? Yeah. So um, the book came to be, uh, so I had mentioned, you know, I, I got an, a non-judicial punishment. This is probably about six or seven months after my deployment to Syria. I'm not adjusting back to being stateside very well at all. Um, I'm working through a lot of these, these issues. You come back from these deployments like super wound up, right? I, I was like on guard for these 20 hours of driving behind a turret. And I've, I've told someone, you know, you either, if you're infantry, you're going to get like the trauma from combat and losing people and all that shit, or you're going to, not have that kind of trauma, but you're going to be like, you're going to have this, this like self-conflict within yourself and you're going to be all wound up and, and all those things. And it started to display itself in very heavy drinking. Um, I ended a relationship I was in uh, long distance. Um, this is someone that I was hoping to marry at some point. And then, you know, it, it, it went the way military relationships went. And then not long after that, I got a DUI um, rank was taken. I was just at my rock bottom, right? When you get rank taken from you, um, when you get a punishment at that level, they restrict you to your barracks room, 45 to 60 days. You're checking in every couple of hours with somebody. It, it was, you know, it was a dark, dark time in my life. Um, and I started writing a lot. Um, I had always loved the book Jarhead for how honest it was about the Marine Corps. If you've never read No Joy by David Rose, he was a recon Marine in the, the early Iraq uh, era. Another outstanding book. What I found, you know, then you can get into like The Hill that came out recently by Aaron Kirk, Freaks of a Feather by Casey Tellison. Marines who are junior enlisted that talk about their experiences in the Marine Corps do not give you this Rose Garden picture. You know, they don't they're very honest about how it affects them as people um, because it's, you get this identity, this title of Marine machine gunner infantryman, 
but that's not who you are. That's just something you're having to live up to every day, right? And my life was this battle of trying to meet this standard, you know, and then also like balancing my relationships back home and then trying to have any kind of life outside of that. It was very difficult to be in my late 20s to be that fucking broke again to, you know, I just, there was a lot of struggle there that I, I hadn't anticipated coming up, but it did. So I started writing and then Dead Reckoning Collective publishes In Love and War, their collection of poetry. I start reading that. Justin Thomas Egan self-publishes a couple of poetry collections and I'm reading it and I'm like, man, this is, this is a much more like accessible way to just kind of distill certain feelings I have about my service or experiences that I've been through into just this one thing. Um, and it was very, very therapeutic for me. I obviously I'm not stupid. I have a college degree. Um, I, whatever side of the brain excels with reading and writing and all that, uh, that must be the side of the brain that I am because I tested into freshman English as an eighth grader. I took honors English all the way through um, because I was a jock. I gaffed it off. There was, uh, (laughs) there was a book report on the awakening, I think by whatever her name, I just didn't do it. I told the teacher, I'm like, I hate this book. She, and my grandmother taught English at that high school. She was like, why don't you put more effort in? I'm like, I did not like the book. Like, I just can't. I can't, you know, whereas, you know, we read Beowulf and I'm all in on it. But I I understood that method of writing. It just it just clicked with me for some reason. So I just started pouring into it, you know, and it's great because I'm still living through my time in the Marine Corps. So I'm just it's like straight from the vein. Like I'm living the source material. Um, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, I wrote a lot. And then I eventually started sharing it with some of my peers that I trusted enough to be vulnerable about that kind of thing. Um, in like October, November of 2019. We deploy, I'm in Okinawa. We're locked down. We're not training. We're just drinking a lot. So I'm just drinking and writing and sharing it with people. Um, and a lot of my friends are like, you should just put this onto social media. Like it would, it would work. It would, you know, people would really, it would hit a vein because I wrote about a lot of the things that my peer group had felt um, specifically this like ache for combat, this ache for validation, this feeling of being like, uh, you know, like a, a just this cog in a machine that's just like, because that's what you are when you join the military. You don't think about it that way, but four years into it, you're like, shit, like I don't have any control over my life. This kind of sucks. Um, so I, I did. I just started sharing it online anonymously, created an Instagram page and just went to town sharing it and, and putting content out there. And it just grew, it grew a lot. And what was interesting was that through other people sharing it and me actually responding to direct messages and things like that with, with other veterans, it was hitting just as powerfully with Fallujah and Ramadi and Marja vets as it was with like my own peers, because there are certain things that I think are universal about this experience, whether you get combat or not. And mature veterans who have moved on from putting their identity behind a combat action ribbon 
understand how much bigger that whole experience is. And uh, it just kept growing and growing and growing. So getting to publishing it, um, I get out of the Marine Corps, September of 2020. I got a job, a pretty good paying gig at a refinery as a, as a process operator, um, working 80 hours a week, like just swinging sledgehammers and pulling chains. And, you know, I'm like, man, like I know I wanted to get out and make a lot of money, but like this ain't it. And I probably would have stayed if they would have given me vacation days and allowed me to go to uh, Montana for the patrol base Abate book club retreat. Um, but they did not. So I quit. <laughs> And I took my, you know, freshly awarded disability back pay and all the money I had saved up. And I was like, I'm going to Montana and I don't know when I'm coming back. I'm going, I'm going to do this thing. I guess we can side note on patrol base Abate a little bit, but it was started by major Tom Schumann. You can find on Instagram at Killzone. Um, He is very involved in the the kind of veteran literature world. He taught literature at the Naval Academy um, after a, very combat heavy first half of his career as a infantry officer, um, platoon commander in three, five and Sangin. um, he spent some time in the recon community as a JTAC Ford observer type role. He was a company commander, um, Lima three, Lima three, four. So, I mean, he's, he had the, the chops from infantry experience. And then he, you know, went, went teach and patrol base Abate is a way to honor Sergeant Matt Abate, a sniper that was attached to them. And it's, they, they offer free of cost retreats for veterans for interest-based clubs. So I went for book club and then just volunteered to stay on as staff for fight club and strength club and, and served in that role. And I'm still involved with them. Um, I was there this past summer again at book club. I met Tyler Carroll, co-founder of dead reckoning collective. Um, they had noticed what I'd been putting out there online. I think the page had like four or 5,000 followers. I had put out probably over a hundred poems just on Instagram, right? You come up with a cool picture or a little video and then you post the post it and then you just go from there. And he asked like, you know, is there a manuscript? Like, do you want to publish? Is there anything? Yeah. I said, yeah, I am. Like I was playing with a couple ideas about a manuscript and, you know, we started working together and we, I put together rock eater. I compiled everything into a chronological order. Um, and then if there were gaps in the story, um, I filled in those gaps, you know, um, most of the stuff written about boot camp in the book was written for the book. It wasn't written like as it happened, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it came to be. That's how rock eater happened. Almost, almost like by mistake, you know, well, what's the significance of the title Rock Eater? What what does that mean? Rock Eater. Um, I wish I could take credit for it. Rock Eater. I first heard it when we go back to ITB, right? Um, when they were they were looking at different guys and like who's gonna do what. And they looked at my buddy, my buddy Jamie was this like tough kid from from New York. He was this like meathead Italian, grew up like kind of rough background. He was just like hyper aggressive to a fault. Um, slow learner, uh, but smarter than a lot of people gave him credit for. Um, but you know, I think he said something really like just stupid and they were like, yeah, that one's going to be a rock eater, (laughs) but, but I knew what they meant. They meant he was going to be a machine gunner and everyone knows like the crayon joke. And I was like, that just sounds so much tougher and cooler. 
Um, but the, the more I've thought about that title, the beauty of that title is when you hear it, it's, it's something that you almost immediately visualize, right? Eating, like trying to eat and chew rocks does not sound pleasant, but you picture this like brute who is chewing and eating rocks just to prove how tough he is at the detriment to himself. I'm like, there's, that's no better title or metaphor of what all of us are doing in our service, right? For sure. And absolutely does sound better than crayon eater, the other epithet directed at, at Marines. So you mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, the, your involvement in different veterans organizations, you talked about uh, PB Abate and Dead Reckoning, both of which are doing great work in the veteran community. Are you involved in any other programs with veterans or helping veterans? Veterans Repertory Theater run by the... The I wish I had like a great like epic kind of word for it to like anyone who knows Chris Meyer knows he's he's one of a kind. Um, he's put together ve- veterans repertory theater to highlight veteran artists and um, bring veterans to the arts community. Like and, and, and his goal is really to, to improve that world by bringing what we have to offer and giving us a platform. He's given me a platform uh, multiple times. Um, I'm the only two-time guest on his podcast because uh, I'm America's greatest podcast guest. <laughs> and um, he put on uh, Savage Wonder Festival over the summer, which was, uh, I mean, <laughs> like I don't even know how to describe it. He pulled together all of these different veteran artists to to showcase them all at once on this beautiful at Sugarloaf Theater in Sugarloaf, New York. And it was just a, it was a beautiful event. I was honored to be a part of it. So I, I've done, I've been involved with them. I'm a member of my local VFW. Uh, they do a lot of good in the local community in New Orleans, uh, patrol base Abate. Uh, I have gone multiple times to the retreats as a uh, kind of like a facilitator. I've just have, I've run enough of them to know like the logistics of how do we feed them? How much ice do we need? How do we, like, how does this work? And then there are certain like actual parts of every retreat. It's like, the book club is sitting around talking to Carl Melantes about Matterhorn, which was awesome. But then fight club next week is like, you know, practicing like reverse leg locks and all this stuff on this platform that book club built, you know, a year and a half ago up there. So there's different things happening with each club, but there are certain guided discussions. There's fireside chats we have every night. There's, there's just, there's certain events that are like key to every one of those weekends that we have, right. Those, those, that program, um, and then they also, you, there are local chapters that have popped up all over the country. Um, I, if I'd lived more full time in new Orleans and didn't spend so much time traveling, I probably would have gotten one going here by now, but that's, you know, that is what has kept me involved, uh, mostly. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier in your work in rock eater and the works that preceded it, the therapeutic value of writing. Do you think that's unique to you or do you think other veterans can or would benefit from writing about their experiences? I think every veteran should write about their experiences. I've described the work, like the poetry in Rock Eater. Like I've described every poem as just being an honest conversation with myself about how I felt about or how I experienced these, these different things. And I don't know anyone who's done journaling and done that type of work writing about their experiences that hasn't gotten a positive 
outcome of it. Uh, Jordan Peterson runs, uh, what's the name of the program? Um, it's something similar to that where it's, it's like, it's this idea where you, when you start writing your narrative, you actually take control of it. There's a feeling of like, you know, like I'm writing my story. It's like, okay, so I am actually in charge of this. For me, a lot of the writing about obviously the, the DUI, the NJP and all those things, there was a lot of accountability there, but it also allowed me to explore like, well, why did I behave that way? Right. Why did I repeat a mistake I made in college that prevented me from becoming an officer? Because that was the original goal. Right. And that's been huge. It's helped me to understand myself a lot more. Right. Well, and at the end of it, you have something that's going to be useful for the next generation of vets. The folks that we, you and I just talked about that are coming up without the benefit of that experience that you and I have can now have an inkling into that world through your writing. Yeah, I think that's very important, especially as we go down to dwell, dwindle down to what's hopefully going to be a period of peace where we're not doing six off, six on deployments for the foreseeable future. It'll become very valuable. Yeah, and then uh, also there's, you know, one of the things to the, the end of the book is and possibly the largest chapter is when I transition out, it's called terminal leave. And it's a lot of poems about being a veteran and then feeling that disconnection, that isolation, but also that feeling of like, did I do enough? Did I like, did I get everything I wanted out of it? And like trying to like make peace with it, which I think every veteran goes through, especially guys who just do four years because Four years is a lot, but four years, when you look at the idea of like all the things you could do in the military and in the Marine Corps, it's like, man, I feel like I missed out on some things. You know, a lot of guys would feel that. And this is, it's a conversation that I had to have with my junior Marines a lot. This feeling of like, well, how do I validate my service? And how do I, you know, that, that question that people have. And what I came back to is that it's about the impact that you had on those you served around. And that's all you, that is all you actually have control over, right? Well, what kind of Marine was I? And, you know, I got, I got the deployment I wanted more or less. And then I came back. There was a very long dwell time after that, long enough for me to get in trouble, long enough for me to then get a bunch of junior Marines. They show up, they're PFCs, I'm PFCs. They're like, you're in charge of me. I'm like, I'm very much in charge of you. Um, This is not going to be a fun uh, 12 months for you. But I, I cared more because I saw the apathy a lot of those kids showed up with because they show up and you immediately get told we're going to Okinawa. Well, it's the unit deployment program. Everyone who is not in the Marine Corps knows that Marines go to Okinawa. And I'm sure most of them are like, well, what are they doing over there? <laughs> right. And it's usually they'll go do a, a training operation in the Philippines and they'll do some stuff with the, the South Koreans. And, but it's, it's the same kind of thing we're doing in Europe, right? It's just where it's force projection and it's presence and it's training partner nations and all that stuff, right? Which is not what anyone joins the infantry to do. Dudes join the infantry to go kill the enemy and break their shit. Well, if we're not doing that, you've got to just continue to train and be prepared and be ready, right? So I had these junior Marines show up and some of them were just so deflated by that. And I understand, but at the end of the day, we still have to get up and do our job. You still have to be ready. Right. So it's, it's like, you know, well, I don't get a deployment like you did. I'm like, well, I got picked to do that deployment because I was deemed most ready. My peers that went on that were picked for a reason. 
And not everyone in our peer group in our platoon did that deployment. And it's a metaphor that I've used with a lot of junior Marines. It's like, you do not get to control any, a lot of this stuff, but what you do control is your readiness, how you treat other Marines, how you lead other Marines and how you are led by other Marines, right? The infantry, you can use the, you know, passing the ball, passing the torch or like links in a chain metaphor, but it all means the same thing, right? The only way to live up to what you were expected to do is to be as ready as possible to do it when the time comes. And that's it. And if it, the time never comes, you're going to be judged by your junior Marines and how ready they are when that time comes. So when you're new, you soak up every little bit of information possible. You become as good and as proficient as possible as you can. And then when your seniors leave and you get Marines, you lead them the best you can and train them. So when I look at my junior Marines, one of them was Marine of the quarter. Um, many of them were meritoriously promoted to corporal. A few of them have reenlisted. One of them is a combat instructor. Um, they, they were great. They were outstanding. And to have them tell me, right, that I played a part in that, that's all I need. I think that's a great point, especially what you're mentioning about being concerned about the things you can do and you can impact. There will always be things that affect our lives and our situation, our units that we can't control and things that we can control. If you spend your time on the things you can control, taking care of people, get the job done. I think when you look back, like you said, and ask, did I do enough? The answer will always be yes. I think that's a great point. Yeah. So Mason, we talked a lot about the past. What's in the future for you? If I remember correctly in a conversation before the show, you mentioned you might be going to the U.S. Naval Academy to talk about Rock Eater at some point in the future. Yes. So I have been invited to speak at the Naval Academy about Rock Eater, um, which blows my mind. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an honor. Um, and it's not something I think a lot of Lance Corporals, like terminal Lance Corporals, will ever be asked to do, uh, except for maybe like Kyle Carpenter. Um, but, you know, he won the Medal of Honor. Um I had a, I had a, a teacher there reach out. Uh, one of the midshipmen had done a book report for her poetry class on Rock Eater. She said she loved the book. She'd been giving it to midshipmen. And I kind of told her, you know, I was like, man, that's awesome to me because I was going to be an officer first. So uh, before I, you know, blew that opportunity. So to, to know that it's impacting people who not only are going to be like in my shoes that are going to be junior enlisted, but that, it is being read and, and paid attention to by people who will lead them it means a lot to me. And she was like, well, would you like to come speak at the Naval Academy? And I was like, well, me? Yeah, uh, I would love to. Like, I would be absolutely honored. So we were talking about like, well, what the speech is going to be like. They, it's when we put together, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of speech. I was just like, y'all don't want me to just read poetry, right? Because I can read the almost the whole book in that amount of time. She's like, no, we want you to speak. I'm like, okay. I was like, does the Naval Academy know what's in the book? Because this is not painting the Marine Corps in like the greatest light ever. Um, I, and every time I get a chance to clear the air on this, I do. I say fuck first sergeant twice in that book. I personally had outstanding first sergeants, but I also know the audience I'm writing for. And I know a lot of Marines, some within my own battalion who had really 
really bad first sergeants who just screwed guys over and were focused on the wrong thing. And, and you could very tell by the way they treated their Marines, their career came before their Marines. I did not suffer from that. My first sergeants went to bat for me and were, were outstanding, but nevertheless, right. That's in the book. I'm like, so does the Naval Academy, like, they're like, no, we want the nitty gritty. We want the truth. We want like the perspective that, that you can give because we don't get that very often. And they're, they're looking to, you know, they want to destigmatize mental health and things like that. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, rock eater is the, the perfect thing to kind of deconstruct and, and talk about those things with. So that's, that's an exciting thing coming up that um, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor. Well, let me know when that happens. I'll drive down. I, I as you know, I, I'm, I'm at the Mil- U.S. Military Academy. I'm at West Point, and we typically habitually don't like the Naval Academy. But I'll certainly make an exemption to be in the audience and, and toss some softball questions to you in the question and answer period when it, when it's time for that. Well, I mean, we can. I can definitely come speak at West Point too. So I'm, I don't discriminate. I'm here to. I'm here to help the military and veterans and whoever else wants to. If anybody wants to. To hear what I have to say and thinks it's valuable, I, you know, West, I've been up there. It's beautiful. I wouldn't mind coming, coming visit again. That is going to be late March. Um, and I'm talking to Chris about trying to put together a vet rep event that weekend as well, since I'm already going to be in the area. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So that's down, down in Annapolis, not far away from DC. I know that they're planning on doing another savage wonderground thing down in that area they had one a couple months back said it was a huge success i know you'd be a big draw for that also it's rock eater is pretty popular and and you're a good uh a good guy to chat with so that's something they should probably talk to you about a little bit down the road yeah what how are you spending how are you spending your time these days what's what's next for you kind of in life so you 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 had your battlefield in syria you, you had the battlefield here at the home front. What's the next battlefield for you, Mason? Where do you see yourself in about five years? Man, in five years, I would like to be uh, independently wealthy, married, have a kid, uh, maybe two. Uh, I, am, I am in the process of rebuilding my life, I guess, for the third time. Um, it's something that I didn't consider when I enlisted in the Marine Corps is the fact that I'm going to have to do a hard reset again at 30. So I've been out for about two years. I have left jobs. I've volunteered in Montana. I've, I've done a lot of different things, wrote the book. After the book, I took a couple of very time intensive, but well-paying gigs and then took time off. I was um, in the New York city area for about a month there. I spent two months in Arizona working at a machine gun range and it's been fun, but I know that that's not leading me in a a real direction either. Um, so, you know, I came back to new Orleans and right now I'm, I'm job searching. I'm spending a lot of time in the gym. I'm taking care of my health. Got a haircut. You know, I am trying to like look the part. I have more books I want to write. I would like to continue to to speak publicly. Um, I plan on continuing to build on what happens at the Naval Academy, but that's not a you know maybe one day that is a career, but that is not a career right now. Um, tomorrow I have a job interview for a security position at a nuclear plant. Um, I've been in the interview process with a 
commercial real estate brokerage for the last two months. And um, where that ended was that I would love to get into something like that. I've always worked very blue collar jobs, but I, I think I'm capable of stepping into that world and they do too, um, but it's a commission only business. So for the time being, um, I'm not, I'm going to keep trying to get my feet under me. Um, I have some ideas for, for some more books to write, probably not poetry. Um, although I certainly could piece together some more collections, but there's just more I want to say, because the more I've walked this path, the more I've learned, I think there is, there's phases to being a veteran. And I think the first phase is first and foremost, like sorting out your shit and your relationship with your service. Until you get that under control, you are going to have this like monkey on your back, this thing dragging you back that prevents you from visualizing who else you could be, what you could be next, right? I wrote an Instagram post about a month or so ago about how I have stopped wearing my uh, memorial bracelet for my section leader and started wearing a gold watch instead, often over the bracelet, right? So if I'm going to a job interview or if I'm going out or if I just, you know, anything like that, that is not what I put forward. It's still something that is like, I will, I will the, the epilogue of the book is dedicated to his memory, right? Because just as he took his life, right. And there are people who are like, you shouldn't wear a bracelet for that. I'm like, I don't, I don't give a shit. I'll remember people. How I want to remember them. Just as he took his life. Like I have had other people I'm close to lose that battle. I, in my darkest moments have dealt with, with thoughts about going that route and it's very real. And, you know, but it's also not what I want to lead with when I'm out in the world, because it's one of those things where I realize like, well, people will see it and they'll ask you. It's like, I can't be mad at someone for asking me about that if I'm wearing it. And is that a conversation I want to have with everyone? Or is it a conversation that everyone actually deserves to have with me? The answer is no. Right. So I'm still growing and trying to trying to move towards who I want to be, um, which is first and foremost, not broke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying to make some money. Right. Uh, people have this this thing where they, they associate with like wanting to be financially successful with being greedy or this or that. And like, that's absolutely not true. I look at it as the more money I make, the more it frees me up to do things I really, really care about. That's right. Um, so that, I mean, that is the, that is the direction I'm, I'm taking my life, uh, right now. So Mason for, for the midshipmen at Annapolis and the cadets at West Point for the Lance corporals in the Corps or anyone who wants to join the military, what, what is your kind of bottom line advice for any of these groups of young men and women that want to serve their country in the military? God, the bottom line advice for anyone who wants to serve the military it's hard to distill it down to one thing and especially like one thing for the very large variety, the huge cross section of people that join and serve. I, so side note, I was personally deeply offended by the extremism stand down that the Marine Corps felt the need to do to address its white supremacy problem. I'm like, dude, it was like my, my, my unit was half Hispanic. I don't think we have a white supremacy problem at all. It, the military is the greatest cross section of American life that I've ever met because it is people from 
every background and socioeconomic class and this and that. And it, it really does bring everyone together. And it proves that when you give them a common culture to be proud of and a common mission to work towards, they put all that other, they put all that bullshit to the side. That's right. right? But it's hard for me to, to distill it down to one piece of advice to anyone. But <laughs> I don't know. I, the best advice I could have given myself is to focus on your mental health and take care of that. I would have been a better Marine and a better leader if I had focused on and, and dealt with those things. If you need help, get help. Um, you don't have to suffer through it alone and that you are more than your ribbon stack that, you know, and that the decision to serve is something that's a very serious decision. And while you do it, you need to be, you need to give it everything you've got. Um, but when you leave, you've got to, you've got to sort, sort that baggage out as well. You've got to unpack that sea bag and you've got to, you've got to be okay with it and be, and understand that there is it, you know, four years. And even if you do 20 years, that's only what one fifth of the life expectancy. Yeah. There's a lot of other life. There's a lot of other things that you can do to continue to serve this community and this world. And then there's, there's more to it, you know, you know, this I mean, is all, not- all that's great for yeah. sure. Many ways to serve, take care of yourself, especially for the, the veterans. I, I, I wrote it down. Phases to being a veteran is something that you said and learning to uh, taking control of your own narrative and, and handling your business as a vet when you get out. I think that's all, that's all great. Great. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I've been doing really the last two years. That's what I did through rock eater. Right. So to me, it's like, what's next? Right. Who am I going to be? Because I don't want my identity to be that I was a Marine for four years and I don't want it to be that I'm a veteran. Right. Those are those are not all encompassing identities. There's so much more that you can do in life. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's just it's it's not the end. It's the beginning. It's something that we've all done. And there's a lot more life on the back end of it, hopefully for all of us. Hopefully. So Mason, as we come to the end of the segment, I'm going to turn the floor back over to you for any shout outs you want to give or things you want to mention or last thoughts about anything related to anything we talked about today. Shout outs to give. Um, I'm deeply appreciative of, of the organizations that have backed me to in, in this journey, right? So Dead Reckoning Collective, Patrol Base Abate. Um, so shout outs to Tyler Carroll, Keith Dow, Tom Schumann, um, Chris Meyer with Veterans Repertory Theater. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of loose ends to tie up. Um, man, is there anybody, uh, any, any writers I think really need to be highlighted? Ben Forche and William Bolliard. So at Benfo and at Just Buck. Um, I know. And then also Neville Johnson. Um, you can be on the lookout for all of those guys to have books coming out in the near future. Um, great friends of mine, great writers. Uh, who else? Shout out to Gunfighter Canyon uh, for giving me a job for two months out there in Arizona, giving me a bunkhouse to live in and a, a 249 to shoot a couple times a week. <laughs> um, that was a blast. That is, that is the pinnacle of like manifesting your dream job. Um, all I had to do was uh, write poetry, volunteer with a nonprofit and shoot machine guns on Instagram until uh, <laughs> Sean hit me up and said, hey, we're hiring uh, a veteran to work the busy season. Do you want to come out here and 
You know, like, yeah, duh, I don't have a job right now. <laughs> that would be great. So they're taking me to, they're taking me to shot show in January. That'll be really fun. Nice. Um, so if, yeah, if things don't work out in new Orleans, I'm probably just going to move to Arizona, live at their range and make content until I become a gun, a YouTube gun sensation. Um, <laughs> that's the backup plan. <laughs> hey, that that sounds like a plan. All right. Well, Mason, thanks for being on the show today. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I look forward to hearing more about your successes and reading more of your books and being in the audience when you when you go down to the Naval Academy. I think that's going to be a great experience for those mids. And I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm seriously excited about it. So hope and hopefully we can see you there. Hopefully we can get hopefully we can recreate it at, uh, at West Point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the cadets here would, would love to hear a point of view like the ones that, that that you've experienced for sure. So, okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes this session of the Battlefields podcast. Many thanks to our sponsor, the Epic Times, today's guest host, Mason Rodrig, and especially to you, our audience, Godspeed and good hunting on your own battlefields.